I don't feel that they're undead. No. Yeah, I've always thought that yeah. was a bit weird. Like they're, they're twice, twice as, alive. as alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. Today we're talking about Men at Arms, which is a book about the city guards and not a Discworld cousin of a jellyfish. And our special guest today is comedian and upcoming author, Cal Wilson. Hi, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to get to talk about Terry Pratchett with live humans. You're obviously a big Pratchett fan. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I own most of the grown-up books, but I've got some on my iPad, which I need to buy physically because I have to own all of them. Do they all match? Like, do you have the covers? No, that- no. I've got, but I've, I've kind of, I'm, I'm, zen about that now like mm. my dad is a massive collector and so I've got that gene but I've kind of rebelling against that and going no it's okay to have mismatched so I've got some of the real old titsy covers and then I've got mm. the kind of more um, dignified grown-up covers and I've got one hardback the very first Terry Pratchett one that I bought is a hardback and everything else is in soft cover is that the one you brought with you yeah, today sorcery I was at a bookshop and there was like a bargain bin and sorcery was in the bargain bin for five bucks and I was like I don't know what this is but it's five bucks I'll give it a read and then I was like oh what have I found? And yeah, so it was completely accidental. So I'm fond of it. Maybe we'll have to get you back to talk about sorcery when we get up to sorcery. <laughs> well, let's do the podcast first. I might be horrendous. That's true. You might, yeah. and we, you might hate us by the end of it. Who knows? <laughs> it could be a terrible time where we all just. That's the end of the podcast. You've just done a one episode season of Pratt Chat and I've ruined it for everybody. We did nearly have a breakdown over um, Men at Arms versus Mort. So we should probably talk about that briefly because a lot of people did ask us. Why we wanted to do Men at Arms? Because it's better than Mort. Well, <laughs> well we uh, we let the readers and the listeners make that decision, and it was very close. But what was the end result, like, in, of this democratic process? Yeah, well, well, Men at Arms is uh, better than. It's be- we're not better than, <laughs> but is is the one people wanted us to read first. But yeah. but those were the two that we offered, and there were a few people asking questions like, "Well, why are you starting with Men at Arms if you want to do the guards books or the watch books? Why aren't you starting with?" Guards, Guards, which is the first one where they are the main characters and which really introduces them. Um, but we didn't want to do that one first because we think we both agree. We think Men at Arms is a is a better book and mm. a better introduction to the world. Mm. Yeah. So that was that was that's kind of where we were coming from. Did you like? Have you been reading them recently, or is this the first one you've come back to read for this a while? This is the first one I've come back to read in a while. I just read Carpet the Carpet People, um, which is not a disquill novel, mm. but a, a Pratchett. Um, I read that with my son, and and it reminded me how much I love him and how much of a dance he makes out of language like yeah so now but now that i've um, reread men at arms i'm like i'm gonna have to reread everything (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. well you could you could read them along with a podcast if you want (laughs) because we have decided which one we're going to do next do you want to give a hint as to which one it might be uh over my dead body okay fair enough we are reading men at arms which uh is the 15th Terry Pratchett book. I should have written this down, uh, but it's uh, it's it is fairly late in the in the series. Um, it is the second of the books to feature the Ankh Morpork City Watch, and um, 
it's also interestingly one of the things I learned when looking up the book. Um, it's the first one where Discworld appears with a copyright symbol inside the book. Oh, hmm. so it's um, it's it's the first time when they were decided we should probably enforce that because someone else might come along and write a book called Discworld and then we'd have trouble. Or open a CD shop based on. When, when it was written <laughs> That's true It would have been the right time to do it Yeah Because it was published in 1993 um, And you know that's That was a different time Which I think we might touch on a few times <laughs> During the discussion today Actually uh, But shall we read the blurb uh, Liz do you want, Should one of us read the blurb Yes would you like to read it Oh, I'll read the blurb This, so this whole thing is very democratic Like right from the voting on who, What we're going to read To who's going to read the blurb mm. we're, very, we're very open and inclusive here At Pratchett <laughs> So this is the blurb from the from the back of the book. Oh, and we should say this this is going to be a spoilerific podcast. If you haven't read it, um, we will be talking about plot points just willy nilly, um, including the blurb, obviously. Uh, but you know, we won't be giving away the joy of reading the book itself. So you should still read it, even if you listen to this podcast first. But here we go. Be a man in the city watch. The city watch needs men. But what it's got includes Corporal Carrot, technically a dwarf, Lance Constable Cuddy. Really a dwarf. Lance Constable Detritus, a troll. Lance Constable Angua, a woman, most of the time. And Corporal Nobs, disqualified from the human race for shoving. <laughs> and they need all the help they can get because they've only got 24 hours to clean up the town. And this is Ankh Morpork we're talking about. Ooh, it's tense, right? It's tense. Also, I just, I, as I was reading that, I'm like, this is the kind of book where you've never heard these names out loud. And I'm realizing yes. my pronunciations could be quite contentious. Well, I was thinking about yeah. that on the way here because I was thinking, I've be, I, in my head, I say Angua. Me too. Yeah, Angua. Yeah, I think I normally say that, but then I'm more like, but surely it would be like Angua? I don't know. But Angua, I think, is probably is better. Let's stick with that. We'll stick with that. It's our Hermione moment. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and um, detritus is an interesting one too because is it detritus or detritus? I would say detritus. I say detritus. But there you go, see, because it's a real word and it has more than one pronunciation. Yep. So we'll just all say it in our own way. Um, mm. Viewers, if you, listeners, you're not viewers. Uh, if you if you are watching us, that's creepy. Stop it now. <laughs> um, if you have uh, impressions or um, opinions about the correct way to pronounce the names, please let us know. We'll talk about that on a future podcast. But um, I think a good starting point, I mean, we're talking about um, the blurb is Ankh Morpork because this is you know it's the first one we're reading, and this is the big major setting for the Discworld, mm. and this book is all about it. What do we? What can we say about Ankh Morpork? Well, I'd like to talk about the river to yeah. start with. Yeah. If that's yeah. all right, because I get quite the descriptions of it are very very evocative, and I get kind of a bit of a queasy moment when you hear about it because I can't stop imagining myself drinking from it, which oh. I don't know if that's. <laughs> A normal thing when you hear about a river, you go, ah, a nice river, what would it taste like? But that's what I do whenever I, I read about it. And I guess you wouldn't be able to find out because anyone who drank from it would die. Yeah, you probably a, have to eat from it rather than yeah. drink from it too, like, like break a bit off. That is to, the way it's described. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like an unholy offspring of the Thames and the Yarra. Yeah, mm. I always think of the Yarra though. Like, well, <laughs> When I think of the Yarra, I think of the river in Ankh-Morpork because I think of it as being that brown kind yeah. of... Murky. Um, yeah, it's kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it and it divides because I think the idea is I've got I'm not going to get the map out. We've got a copy of the map, but it's it divides what was the city of Ankh and the city of Morpork. It's the Aubrey Wodonga of the Discworld. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And and now it's it's one city state because this is you know the world of Discworld is is that sort of 
idea of a medieval magical fantasy Europe kind of place. And so that it's a city-state. It's it's not part of a larger country. It's uh, it's a nation unto itself, divided by a river in the middle. With all these weird bridges that they keep finding bodies under in this book <laughs> by accident. <laughs> and what else? Do we, what else do we need to say about the city? I mean, remembering that this is this is some people's first blush with it when they're reading this book. If this is the first one they're reading, as we've suggested, I think that it's so packed with characters and so bustling and so you know, and that you've got all the different guilds that mm. living side by side with each other, and mm. that. Um, you get that sense that it's been there for a long time and that it's well established and that magic is leaking out of the unseen university and um, just that it's kind of chaos. Yeah, but organised chaos, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Because oh. if you're going to have crime, it may as well be organised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the patrician's stance, the the ruler of the place. And mm. I think, I mean, that's one thing that struck me about this book is it's an interesting time in the history of Ankh-Morpork in the novels is that it, they're still talking about how it had this golden age mm. and it's kind of fallen since then but it's this is the sort of one of the first books where it starts to progress like the social order start, changes a bit yep. during this book mm. which I quite like there's all those illusions that are quite kind of like real the real world leaking in and kind of not what I find really interesting, speaking of the real world leaking in, yes. um, is the way that he will make an analogy about something and he will use an analogy from our world. So he'll talk about a car or he'll talk about a telephone or something like that, which is something that doesn't exist in the disc world, but he uses um, he, he uses sort of touchstones from our world, which I kind of go, that's a really interesting choice to make because mm. that doesn't exist in that world. Yeah, he does that a lot in lots of different ways as well. Like he even does that just with the prose. Like the prose will refer to things that are only mentioned in footnotes because mm. he uses a lot of footnotes yep. to mm-hmm. comic effect. But he'll put something in a footnote and then two paragraphs later he'll refer to it as if it was part of the main text. Yeah. Or one of the characters will refer to something in much the same way that he's just described it in what is clearly non-character thought. Yep. You know, third-person omniscient or narrator kind of text. And it's, yeah, it's really fascinating the way he blends those things mm. and doesn't seem to worry too much about conventions like that. Yeah, mm. like he's making his own rules. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, he famously, there's somebody who reviewed one of his books, and I forget which one it was, and panned it and, he's, and, and said of him, oh, he's not a real author. He doesn't even write in chapters because <laughs> he doesn't write chapter books. There's, they're all just, you know, they're just separated in, you know, with a blank space between paragraphs to say now we're in a different scene. And it gives them a very cinematic feel, mm. I think, because it just kind of keeps going. It's not divided up into bits, uh, which I really like. But again, yeah, he's not following the rules, um, particularly for fantasy novels. They're supposed to have all kinds of chapters and, you know, be numbered and all that kind of stuff. I just can't imagine how how difficult it would have been for him to break in. Because like, once the wall was broken down, they're like, yes, please keep giving us these books. But I can't imagine trying to sell this cold in a world where this kind of book doesn't exist. Mm. So I'm not really sure what the story behind mm. it is. Like if he had like 20 manuscripts that just got rejected all the time or if he just got a lucky break. I know that because I've just bought two for my son. Um he used to write columns in the newspaper that he wrote for and it's like kids stories and stuff. So maybe mm. there was a certain establishment. And but he started writing when he was a teenager like the carpet people he wrote that when he was 17 or something. Yeah, and then he went back and and rewrote, re-wrote it, it and edited it yeah. and got it published as an adult. So he's like, "Ha ha. <laughs> now <laughs> I can do it." Nobody to publish yeah. this when I was 17, but it's still good. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I think he must have. I think he must have. That We can research that. That's a yeah. thing to think mm. about. I think we can talk about that on another episode. But his confidence in his work comes through. We've chosen this as someone's first foray into the disc world. Mm. Um, but we should. I guess we should start start because we also want people to be able to follow the plot if we if they haven't read the book because we want we want this to be nice and inclusive. So that but the book is is essentially a murder mystery. Mm. 
it's a real police procedural kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also quite, um, it's quite an anti-gun violence Mm. book as well. Like it's, um, and also a diversity and inclusiveness um, aspect to it too. Yeah. So sort of where you start to see that progressiveness Mm. come into Ankh-Morpork because the watch is taking on new members at the start of the book and they're being... I don't know if forced is the right word, but they've, they've been sort of determined that they have to take non-human members in. Mm. And so they have uh, Lance Constable Cuddy, a dwarf, and Lance Constable Detritus, or Detritus, uh, who's a troll. And uh, they have Angua, who's the first... Wo- the the first woo. Yeah. <laughs> wo- um, so the gag being that you think it's because she's a woman, but actually she's a werewolf, mm-hmm. which is cool. Uh, although I, I feel... How do we feel about them classing a werewolves as undead? I don't feel that they're undead. No. Yeah, I've always thought that yeah. was a bit weird. Like they're, they're twice, twice as alive. As alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you thought the same thing there. That was great. I think I think he's done it largely to have that prejudice, yes. which you get yeah. coming from Vimes and from Carrot, who are just dead against oh dear, oh, oh dear. Uh, against the undead. Um, and you can kind of see their point, like you know, because zombies are supposed to eat brains, or that's not really what they do on the disc world. They just and do law and stuff, don't yeah, they? Yeah. yeah. Is it Red Shoe the? Yeah. Red shoe. Yeah, he's <laughs> mentioned in this, but not in it, which yeah. is interesting. Um, and you do meet. There's one vampire who's the lawyer to the. That's right. The Ramkin family. Mm. So literally a blood sucking lawyer. <laughs> but that's and there's they're not really in it that much either. But I think in order to get that prejudice in, which is a bit weird because like there's plenty of other reasons to be prejudiced against werewolves. Like they do kill people, or they're supposed to. Angua doesn't really seem to do that. They seem quite rare though, as well, don't they? Certainly in Ang- more yeah. pork. Yeah, I mean, in later books, I mean, she's her name is Angua von Überwald. That's right, um, yeah. Which kind of indicates, and I can't remember how this plays out. It'll be something we revisit later, but that she's, her family must be a big deal in Überwald if their whole well, name yeah, is you, Überwald, yeah. which is kind of like the spooky Transylvanian country in the disc world. So do you think she has an accent? Surely she's she'd never have men- to. She's never mentioned though, is she's it? She's not written with one, is she? No. But because so many people come into Angmore yeah, from so yeah. many places, maybe they all have accents and it would just be too laborious for someone yeah. who works in accents to give everyone the proper accent. I hate reading too yeah. much dialect. Like, was it, mm. is it Irvine Welsh that, that wrote Trainspotting? Yeah. And yeah. he writes in... A Scottish dialect, I think, and I can't remember if it's all his books or not. But I was like, oh, just no, <laughs> too hard. Yeah. Well, or when the good. gargoyles speak and they don't oh. have any consonants, and I have to read them aloud to work out what it is that they're saying. Yeah. I don't mind that because it's not a lot of. It's fun. That's yeah. fun though because you're imagining it. Yeah. It's so evocative, you know. And we, I mean, we wanted to have a segment called Font Watch because there's so many different ways that Pratchett uses text to represent different voices. Yeah. It's so much fun, but the gargoyles were a real favourite of mine. I always imagine them talking with a mouthful of pigeon, and that's why they're all <laughs> sort of muffled. Yeah, it's not that they can't move their mouths, it's that they've just got a pigeon in there, yeah. Because that's what they do. So so that's what's happening at the start, um, is they're, they're getting new recruits on. But at the same time, we mentioned this has kind of got a bit of a message to it. There's this other character, Edward um, Deeth, um, and which is based on a real name like there is a real nobility yeah. name huh. um Diath, i believe is another pronunciation yeah well that's how they like that's the proper way to yeah. pronounce the real name because it's d-e apostrophe a-t-h yeah. um and they don't like it when you say death no. <laughs> but i think edward's family probably do pronounce it death well, as um, assassin's guild members they're truly yeah you're not going to yeah. be showing away from yeah. that eh? it yeah. would make sense um and he's a he's a bit of a weird character because he sort of he shows up at the start and he's obsessed with this idea that 
you know, we need to get back to having a king of Ankh-Morpork pork or a queen of Ankh-Morpork pork. Make and I think Ankh-Morpork think, great again. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you imagine him wearing like black robes with that embroidered on the, <laughs> on the hood. But yeah, he's he's obsessed with that. Um, and is kind of the catalyst for everything that happens, but he's not really in the book very much. No, no. Yeah. But I suppose because the the gon, or however you pronounce, you're gonna mm. pronounce it, it's got the power. So he's just discarded. So he's not the. He's not important. No, no, because mm. because the power resides in the artifact mm. that should have been destroyed. He's just a cipher for it. And the the gon again, if you haven't read it, is. Is a gun. It's the yeah. first gun, the only gun that exists in all the disc world, um, invented by a mad inventor who's basically Leonardo da Vinci, mm. but is called Leonard de Quirm. Um, <laughs> and who, you know, that he built one. And then uh, the patrician, in his wisdom, was like, we should destroy this. I'll give it to the assassins to destroy. I don't know, why did he give it yeah, to the why, assassins? Why did you not just smash it yourself? Yeah. Like, if you were thinking clearly. You'd think so. I mean, I, I, I kind of get the impression his thinking was, assassins would not be into this. Like, mm. this gives anybody the power to kill someone really efficiently. And that kind of puts us out of a job. So we'll destroy it. But then they put it in a glass cabinet and keep it, which becomes obviously very important later on. And it's the only one. One of the things I found really interesting about the, the gone is it very much wanted to make sure it remained a unique thing because then only the person who has the gun has that power. Yeah, yeah. They didn't want to be mass produced and become a thing that everybody had, which is quite in contrast to the kind of issues we have mm. with guns in our society. And there's a beautiful bit where he talks about um, uh, that the person that invents the gun has to be a genius, but to reproduce it, you just have to be a mm. clever man. Mm. And I thought it was such a great idea. I'm like, yeah, you just have to be able to copy something. You don't have to be... But to have that idea to make the thing for the first time, you have to be Leonard of Quirm. Yeah. Um, and I did like that it's the only thing he gives a proper name to as well. Mm. Leonard of Quirm, of course, is brilliant in all areas except for naming his inventions. He's invented the post-it note, but the name he's come up with is Handy Note Scribbling Piece of Paper with Glue That Comes Unstuck When You Want. Well, isn't the implication that he didn't really invent it? It used him to come into being. Like he kind of mm. felt like he was assembling yeah, something the conduit, sort of, yeah. that already existed, and maybe that's why it already has a name. So it's not really his invention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And because he also he just scribbles it in the margin, doesn't he? It's not mm. one yeah. of his major ideas. Yeah. And of course, it goes missing, and we have the whole start of the mystery with um, the uh, explosion at the Assassin's Guild. Which is, I mean, it brings so many nice things together because mm. it allows, it ties in the whole thing with Sybil Ramkin um, and the dragons, which is from the previous watch book, Guards, Guards. But I don't remember how Sam Vimes, Captain of the Watch, gets together with Sybil Ramkin. That's the, I'll be interested. Wealthiest woman in the village and village, but like. Yeah, I mean, I know what, what thrusts them together, which is that she's the expert on swamp dragons and now they've got a real big dragon in the previous book. But I don't, I don't, I don't remember how that relationship starts, and she's hardly in this book as well. Yeah, mm. and they're about to get married, yeah. like, but she's hardly in it at all. Yeah. She's got a interchangeable Emma's and there's yeah. kind of brief mentions of her, but she's definitely not a main. Yeah, hmm. and this, in fact, I was I was thinking about this when I was thinking about Angua, is that she's really the only female character in the whole book. I mean, there's Sybil's in it, Cake and Mrs. Cake yeah. is in it, but they've Has really a, only got a couple yeah, of scenes yeah. each, um, and so. Yeah, and it particularly because that the, yeah, there's that ticking clock of oh, you know, I'm one week away from retirement yeah. for Sam yeah. Vimes because I'm going to get married and I'm going to step down out of the watch because I'll be the richest man in Ankh-Morpork now. Um, is yeah, really kind of weird. I thought, um, but yeah, there's 
then and then that ties her in because the explosion is caused by an exploding dragon. Poor oh, Chubby. Chubby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mm. so sad. Yeah. But I love that thing about the dragons being like little stray dogs that mm. need looking after. Um, mm. And they have the whole the lineages and the names and the breeding, but they're just also, they're kind of like one of nature's little mistakes because they accidentally explode themselves all the time. But it's that crime scene is, is kind of where the plot kicks off. Uh, it starts the all of the traditional police stuff. He kind of throws all the different kinds of police procedural in there because Vimes does a bit of the Columbo thing where he like sort of asks a few questions and then pretends he's done and then turns around at the end and asks one more question. <laughs> but also they find things by accident a lot mm. that mm. proceed, you know, forces the plot along. Um, Stuck to Colin's foot like later that comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they tread on the glass and then they find the collar on the roof. Mm, and Angua has her has her um, thing that she can't explain, mm. the way that she can smell the scent because of her werewolfness, but she mm. can't admit that to anyone. So you've got that kind of, I just knew somehow. I'll just have a look mm. around the corner. Yeah. And Gaspar and her having like a B-plot, like body cop movie. Yes. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is great. <laughs> but also, you know, it's when we are introduced to the Assassin's Guild mm. for the mm. first time who have played a part in a lot of the novels even before this, they kind of presented as kind of just a really high-class private boys' school mm. that just gives you an excellent education but also happens to teach you how to kill people really efficiently, but only for money. Like, they, it's, it's brought up mm. a few mm. times that that's like, yeah, we only kill people for money. Like, it's a job. Like, we don't... Yeah, we're not weird. Yeah. Like, <laughs> And there's that footnote about how no gentleman would ever dream of being trained as a thief but they all mm. want to be trained as assassins. Mm. It's just creepy. But it's a weird It's a weird school. Yeah. I love that it's next to the Clowns Guild. Yes. Like, that's just great. Like, yeah. obviously, that plays a role in the plot, but I also just enjoy that as a thing in yeah. general. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to think of two guilds that are... Less likely to get on. Yeah. And they yeah. share a wall, and it's just great. You just imagine the kind of noises that you'd hear <laughs> yeah. from either one upsetting <laughs> the people in the other guilds. But it also makes a kind of sense, like, you know... A terrible yeah, the way. balance of yeah, yeah, yeah totally. tragedy and comedy. Yeah. Um, it's kind of also the first time we see the new watch in action because mm. we haven't seen them all together. And we do. I mean, we also we haven't mentioned the rest of the members of the watch. So we've talked about the new recruits a little bit, and particularly you know Cuddy and Detritus that do not get on because they're a dwarf and a troll. But then they do get on, and it's one of the most beautiful friendships yeah, in all yeah. of <laughs> books. Yep. But we, we do see Fred Colin doing his thing, who uh, is one of the original guards from Guards Guards. And I, I don't know, I love Fred Colin. Yeah, yeah. He's sort of amazing. One of nature's sergeants. It's just, yeah, it's just a, such a good line. He's like in every British police show, there is someone like him. Like if you watch Heartbeat, there's like Alf Ventress, who is that one who just likes to sit at his desk and eat a sandwich and he always answers the phone and doesn't like going out yeah, at night. Yeah, no, no ambition has, yeah. has just reached the level of his ambition mm. and sat there for 30 years. And then they, and they talk about his military background and he always reminds me not so much of like, you know, the sergeant in full metal jacket, but more like, you know, the sergeant in dad's army. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's more like, I'm going to be, you horrible, get in, get in line. But you're like, but he's really, he's like a cuddly granddad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's described, interestingly, he's not really described this way in this book, but in, in Guards Guards, they constantly talk about how he's a big fat guy yeah. as well. And mm. in this one, it doesn't really come up at all, which I thought was an interesting change. Yeah. I think I visualize him as being sort of shaped like a bowling pin. Just not fat exactly, but unusually shaped. Yeah, mm. yeah, like not not fit. Yeah, uh, not lumpen. Like, yeah, you wouldn't send him out as infantry. Um, no, mm. and Nobby's not really there. He doesn't. Does he go to the Assassin's Guild? 
I don't he think goes he to did. the armory. Like yeah, and he's he suddenly he's suddenly incredibly useful in the armory. Yeah, because he's good at war. <laughs> but he's, and he kind of just mentioned a lot up until that point. And for someone who's like such a staple of all the watch books, I found it really weird that he was in it so little. For yeah, yeah, first, like, yeah. It doesn't sort of come into his own in this one, does he? Yeah, mm. and he's something else actually. We're talking about how the librarian maybe isn't as described for new readers, but Nobby is hard to get a handle on in this book. I think. Yeah. Mm. Um, his original description was very simple, which is just that he was quite short and looked a bit like a chimpanzee, <laughs> um, and that he was clearly very dodgy. Um, yeah. And that's really kind of... But then he just plays that archetype to the hilt. Yeah. And in this book, yeah, he's just sort of not there. And then he does that, you know, and it's all about how he used to nick things. And He was a quartermaster or whatever. And, and then, yeah, and obviously uh, a corpse burglar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, you know, someone has to go across the battlefield and steal all the things off the corpses, apparently. So it might as well be him. But isn't it like he's pretty, like, intent at it? Like, he cuts people's fingers off to get at mm. his stuff. Like, he's... Not he's, squeamish. He's serious about it. Yeah. He takes his job very seriously. You yeah. wonder how did he end up in the watch? Like, is it because he wants more access to... Uh, there's, in Guards Guards, they talk a lot about... Cause th- which is when Carrot volunteers. And which is only said a few months before this. There's a few... There's a line where Vimes says, you know, he's only been here for a few months and already everybody loves him. Um, but when he first arrives, they keep asking him, why are you joining the watch? Because they're amazed that anyone would volunteer... And they keep talking about the fact that everybody else is there because they're running away from something or they just want to, you know, there's nowhere else where they quite belong. And that the, it's kind of intimated that Nobby sort of ended up in the watch because he, he did a bit too much thieving in, the, in right. the army or he just needed to get away from getting in trouble there and find a similar job. And that Colin kind of just ended up there because he wasn't in the army anymore and there's nowhere else for him to go. And Vimes ended up there because he just kept pissing off all the people mm. who were high up. Because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut yeah. about things he thought were wrong, um, which is what we all love about him, yeah. of course. And he's not in this book that much, actually. Come to think of it, but when he is, he makes a strong impact. Like he propels the plot along, and he's doing something really intense. So. Yeah, and he's in it for about the first half, and then he vanishes for, well, mostly vanishes for about a hundred pages, and then comes back in at the end. I didn't remember that happened, yeah, and it's yeah. so weird because he's so definitely the main protagonist of pretty much all of the Watch books after this. Well, he's at a personal crossroads, though. I thought it was kind of because he's thinking of leaving the watch. So he's like, can I stand aside and just let this all happen yeah, without, happen without me? me? What's going to happen if I do go? Can yeah. I manage? And then he just can't. like, And they manage like his carrot, but also not quiet. So he has to sort of come in at the end. and Yeah. And it seems like a point for the patrician, too, because he's like sort of trying to bend Vimes to his will by telling him not to do something. Yeah, reverse psychology. Mm. Um, But then he he admits to himself that, oh, maybe I've gone too far by sacking him, Mm. you know, or by demanding his sword and his badge. And it is that sort of weird, not quite scene that you see in all the films where they Mm. take someone's badge off them and then they go off and do it anyway. They go rogue, yeah. Yeah. Because Vimes doesn't do that, really. He sort of just goes and gets drunk um, and then takes himself out of the plot for 100 pages. (laughs) But he's kind of still there in spirit, I think. Yeah. There's, there's moments sorry, that I reckon are just so quintessentially Sam Vimes, like when it talks about the boots. He's on the way to... He's just arrived outside of the Ramkin estate um, and Sunshine Home for um, a poor old little abandoned... What is it called? Dragons. The Ankh-Morpork Sunshine Sanctuary for Sick Dragons. Hmm. Um, and he's sort of comparing himself to Sybil, who's very, very rich. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. 
but an affordable pair of boots, which was sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that'd still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots at the same time and would still have wet feet. That was the Captain Samuel Vimes boots theory of socio-economic unfairness. Yeah. Oh, oh, so good. It's amazing. So great. I and think it, about that at least once a month. It so sums up his character that he is the one who has that observation. Yeah. Mm. And then later on we find that there's a sheet of cardboard under his bed. Mm. When Angua is searching his room, she finds a sheet of cardboard that's going to be good for his souls. And also we see him knowing where he is by the cheap boots so yeah. in a way he has to have the cheap boots so yeah. that he can know the city exactly and we find out what he does with the rest of his paycheck every month oh. just to give it to the widows which is just and he'd never tell anyone which is amazing. yeah it doesn't surprise any of the old watch members they're all like no. oh yeah of course yeah whereas you know Angua reads it and is like he's just giving all this money to women like he's clearly yeah. like i thought yeah. that was a weird that's yeah. that was a weird moment for me of Angua being really judgmental and, mm. and like he's visiting sex workers mm. and going well she can't have been any good she was only two dollars like i don't feel like that's something that a, a woman would say about yeah. another woman like it's like a it was a weirdly judgy moment it yeah. didn't seem like her character no. at all. Like, and especially since she lives in Mrs. Cake's area. And she also makes that comment about seamstresses, which doesn't sound judgmental. But yeah, then yeah, in that like, moment, oh, it's, it's it's weird. And then also, I think Carrot's holding on to her. I think for the whole, is he holding on to her, gripping her wrist or something? After oh. she finds out that it's a little girl, and she's jumped to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, so it's like that whole scene is kind of weird. There's a lot of weird stuff in the carrot angular relationship, actually. Like, I, when I was reading it, I was like, well, I like both of them, and they're both yeah. smart and attractive, and so, of course, we, we kind of want them to get together. But they also just feels like they're fated to get together, and there's no real chemistry Yeah, they wouldn't have done them. it by themselves. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think in later books, he kind of nails that better. But in this one, yeah. it's like, you just have to be together. There's no... And she, the way she talks about him is just sort of observing the way other people relate to him. Yeah, and also she's kind of, um, I feel like it's that, like when there was a, a, a new reboot of Scooby-Doo and they made mm. Velma fall in love with Shaggy, I was like, no, the smart woman doesn't go for the dumb guy. Like, yeah. And I'm not saying that Carrot is dumb, he just has a very linear way of viewing things, but it's like, mm. but why would she find him attractive? He doesn't get any of her jokes, he doesn't get anyone's jokes, he's just a nice dude. Mm-hmm. What, why should she fall for him? Also, yeah. she seems really bored on all their dates. Yeah. Like, she goes on them because she likes walking and stuff because she, she likes going for walkies and she doesn't seem to actually yeah. really enjoy them. That's yeah. a side point. And then Gaspard says, he's your master. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm I'm not, not into, into that, that either. either yeah. no. I mean, in a way, I sort of thought that was excusable because that's how a dog, a dog might would think, view things. Particularly in the relationship between what he sees as a dog in Angua and a human being. But still, it was pretty off-putting in guards guards there's this whole thing with carrot is entirely innocent when it comes to like you know sex and relationships mm. like and about 16 by the way as well he's meant to be very young so he must be still about the same oh, age yeah, in this. Yeah. and suddenly like he's all like yeah Lothario. now yeah and also you know he's there's that bit where he sort of pats gasboat on the head and he's like oh, at least you've got a lady friend and you're like what yeah yeah like but you're already lusting after this woman who just met her and you work with her it's very weird <laughs> But it's it, very weird. I thought it was quite interesting how Angua has these two, for lack of a better word, suitors that are each one half of yes. who she is, but there's mm. no one that crosses both. Because like, I would believe Gaspard and Angua over Gaspard and Carrot in this book because they actually have banter. They talk to each other about all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And they, they have a real relationship. Yeah. And, yeah. 
And, and they work well together. And she's honest with him completely mm. about everything. So I just found it interesting that there's like a guy for each half of her, but then they eventually choose Carrot because that makes book sense and they never sort of really explore anything else subsequently. Yeah, yeah but and it really just does feel like when they finally, you know, have that moment and they sleep together, it does feel like kind of, really? Yeah. If, if, I mean, he's he's hot. I get that. And you're hot. But still, really? It just came a bit out of nowhere. Also, yeah. when did he learn? Like, oh, yeah. Well, presumably she's teaching him. Presumably she's like, oh, well, all right, I'll show you what to well, do. she must be because it, it's explicitly talked about in Guards, Guards that he hasn't had the talk yet because mm. he's too young by dwarf standards. Like dwarves don't talk about that until they're like 55. Like hobbits. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because they live for a long time. Puberty with dwarves is all about being able to figure out beards <laughs> and stuff. You know, he's raised by dwarves. He's secretly the king of Ankh-Morpork, which is a huge plot point in the book. And you never see the evidence in enough detail, but it's pretty clear in this book, at least, that he's the real deal. Yeah, mm. and, and they make a big deal about how you shouldn't you shouldn't be admiring the guy that can pull the sword out of the stone. You should admire the guy that can put the sword into the stone. Mm. Yeah. And at the end, when he stabs someone and the yeah the sword goes neatly into a pillar... It feels to me like he's writing these. He's writing this book in the same way that we would write a good hour of stand-up. Yeah. Like it's full of callbacks yes. and references yes. and joke structures and rules of three stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's genius. Yeah, they're so beautifully crafted mm. oh, and, yeah. and set up and then shelved and then you find them later on. And So I think in the plot we're talking about, and we're kind of, you know, we're going a bit loose for this, but so that you can follow along, they, they go to the Assassin's Guild, there's been an explosion. That's when the gun is stolen or the gone as it's spelt. It's and gone. It's, and it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, when they find the notes, they're like, gone. Why would yeah. you label something as gone? Like, it's not there anymore. But there's also a murder not long after that of a dwarf who uh, is examining the gone and is accidentally killed by it. And that's the point where we meet death for mm. the first time I in love this book. Death. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not in this book very much. No. I, mean, I love how lovable death is mm. always. Like, oh, he's yeah. so earnest. So earnest and just, re- but really tries, really tries to do the right thing. Yeah. Mm. And it's just slightly inappropriate all the time. Yeah. yeah. But because you can see him, he's trying to make people feel better, but at the same yeah. time, they're dead now. So <laughs> yeah. it's a serious moment. Well, the first person we see die is Hammerhawk the Dwarf. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, no, because no, Bino, Bino dies Bino before die that. Bino, the clown. Yeah. yeah. Will there be like white face and custard pies in the afterlife? It's <laughs> like, no. He's like, oh. I like it. Yeah, really I imagine it. Just imagine like the that that clown is like I fucking hate cl- I hate being yeah. a clown. I yeah. just hate it. Like I think they all hate being clowns. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Except for Whiteface, I feel like he likes being a terrifying yeah. clown. Doctor Whiteface, head of the Fools Guild. Like he could live down a sewer and lure yeah, children yeah. into it. Like absolutely. It felt very topical actually. <laughs> <laughs> Written after it, but there's not really there's no, no really there's direct no crossovers. No, because no. clowns are scary and writers know that. They are funny, but in a way that doesn't gel well with modern Yeah, it's interesting. We, I took my son to see a circus recently and the clowns were awful. And I was thinking about it. And I was, the reason I think that circus clowns are always awful, and my apologies if you're a circus clown, but you're awful. <laughs> I think the reason they're always awful is that comedy is about timing and about um, the push and the pushback and the, and the sort of the conversation that you have. And so it's all about 
like feeling the moment and making that moment funny whereas circus clowns have to be so precise in their movements because someone's got to fall down here and catch the other person on their feet also like it takes all of the joy and the spontaneity out of it Mm. because it's so precise so there's no room for the moment that's why circus clowns are never funny to me because it's like there's no spontaneity in it it's just a it's just a regimented learnt thing which terry pratchett captures really well with the when you enter the clowns guild like they have the the regimented yeah the things series that happens the bucket of whitewash on the thing you've got to sniff the the sad pie that just like it's too heavy and it drops on its arm like they haven't even got that regimentation because it's everything just doesn't quite work yeah (laughs) and their heart's really not in it no yeah it's really hard to understand why anybody is in the fool's guild because they all seem to hate it I imagine it as where you send your disappointment child. Yes, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you have your one in the Assassin's Guild and you have one maybe, do, I don't know what they're doing, that's not, like, another good one and then, oh, this one hasn't quite found their way, like, a Clown's Guild, like, they'll, they'll sort him out. The image I really loved in the, the Fool's Guild was the faces on the eggs. Oh. <laughs> Is that a real thing, though? Does that a thing that... Well, there's because there's a couple of competing traditions. Because so there's, like, your modern circus clown tradition, which grew out of that sort of, um, you know, the... Uh, Commedia dell'arte and the yep. clowning uh, that's probably not the right phrase but you know what I mean and they, they have the stock characters who have who use the yeah, same the mask or the yeah, same yeah. makeup like the Harlequin and the others so I don't know that they did individualise it that much but I like that idea it resonated with modern comedy where you know certainly in Australia you only perform your own jokes yep. like nobody writes your jokes for you which is why we had that tremendous controversy with that guy who was on one of the talent shows oh yeah just using just using material that he found on YouTube mm. um, from overseas comics. And everyone was like, isn't it just like covering music? And we're like, no, it's not. And it was quite hard to explain yeah, to some yeah. people. And it's not the same everywhere either. Like in the States, a lot, quite a lot of big name comics, as my, as I understand it, have will writers. have writers. Yeah. But they still won't perform jokes that were written for someone else. Yeah. It felt like that, you know, like you've got to have your own face yeah. and you can't use somebody else's face. And that sort of thing that other people didn't understand but that was so intrinsic to your art form Mm. it felt like that and the moment where the where um angua asks the clown you know would anyone wear bino's face and like i'm not a pervert like i don't (laughs) want to have this conversation like (laughs) it's just so unfathomable but that's and that's kind of the first murder and they find bino's body under the bridge after they leave hammerhocks and they're like what why is he here what's going on and they have the really sad Fool's Guild funeral. Yeah, mm. the ashes get getting poured into oh. the half mask pants. Oh, <laughs> so just you can see it in your head, and yep. it's just as upsetting as uh, as you might imagine. It's oh. like in a subsequent book when they've got the fu- like they're trying to put out a fire, but you know it's just a- oh, <laughs> just like <laughs> pouring the water on the ground, and they've got a bucket with a hole in it. Yeah, it's just it's just pathetic and sad. It's mm. terrible. Um, there is one other guild that features in the book. It's probably worth mentioning now, which is the Alchemists Guild, where they go to find out what's the deal. Like we can smell fireworks, but we don't know what it is. Mm. And they show them the notes. And when they arrive, they're trying to make billiard balls, and the billiard balls are exploding. And this is a real thing. When the ivory was getting rare, and this is like in a, I think the 30s or the 40s, they were trying to make artificial billiard balls, and they were they started making them out of a derivative of cellulose, which is very combustible. <laughs> um, so they didn't explode, but they could certainly set on fire. So there's a great episode of the podcast 99% Invisible oh, I a, love that about that journey and finding yep. those things. So I kind of liked how they was that real world thing, and the alchemists were all a bit weird and. You know, half of them don't have any eyebrows. And, and it's nice to see a few of the guilds in this book. Yeah. And the Beggar's Guild as well. We meet the... Um, mm. Oh, the Beggar's Guild. Yeah. yeah. And the Dog's Guild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do we, are we all dog people here? I'm a cat lady. I've got a cat, but I like dogs, so... Probably I'm more of a dog person than a cat person. Although I, I like both. But I can't imagine a cat's guild. Well, they wouldn't take leadership from one person. Like, yeah. they'd all just be like, 
You're not the boss of me. They might have a meeting. I don't, just... I don't know that any of them would turn up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's a story about how in the, the Chinese zodiac calendar, there's a dragon, but there's no cat. And the story behind that is that the cats were like, I'm not going to come to this meeting where we assign these things out. <laughs> That's great. I didn't know that. Um, but the dog's guild is horrifying because it's not really a dog's guild. It's more a kind of terrible It's a wolf rebellion. pack role, role yeah. play. Interestingly enough, I once played in a live action role playing game where I was a werewolf. And that wasn't very much like real wolves either. It's like what I imagine the kind of the alt-right meetings are like. Of like all the misfits that have had no love and, and just want to feel important and strong. And they're taking orders off the shittiest, littlest one that's got the most anger issues. Yeah. Oh, oh, and they're yeah. trying to be something else, that, but their idea of it isn't what it is yeah, in yeah. reality. Yes. Their dream of it, it does not match yeah. up to the mm. real life. And that, that contrasting when, when anger is there and she's talking about what, what a wolf pack is really like. Yeah. You know, we don't do things because the leader says. We do things because our instincts are all in yeah. tune and we all jump at the same time because mm. that's the right time to jump, not because the leader says jump. But, yeah, horrifying. Feral dogs are truly scary. Yeah. yeah. And the idea that, you know, Big Fido, leader of the dogs killed, is this satanic poodle with, like, glowing <laughs> red eyes. <Yeah. laughs> oh, creepy. And I liked that that was the payoff for Gaspode when he yeah. mentions having the power. Mm, and I yeah. sort of had a vague memory of what it was. And then when it's like the fact that he can give human commands to yeah. other dogs, <laughs> it's like, oh, cheeky, like, sit, you're a bad dog. And yeah. they're all like, oh, I am a bad dog. <laughs> but that also puts him that kind of half and half universe that Angua occupies as well, because he's got the human, He's he lives in the human world, but half in the dog world. And he's trying to occupy both of those spaces by, you leave me alone, you guys, you dogs, leave me alone. I'm fine. But then having to pull out his human voice mm. and be on the dark side kind of there's that main plot of that mystery and then that's sort of all these other things like the dogs guild and the alchemists and they sort of just they fit they, in naturally he finds really good ways to fit them in yeah which i thought was really great mm. is there a b plot in this book do you think or is it really all a plot i suppose it all has to be a plot doesn't it because yeah. like the, the mm. wedding is kind of takes a back seat but that's the impetus for getting sam vimes into action and he needs an event where the patrician is going to be out in public. Mm. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't normally go out in public. And a big society wedding is it. So that's his chance. Mm. And so it makes sense that that's when it's going to happen. Yeah. And why also he tries to kill Vimes before that. That's, that's actually a pretty traditional Pratchett thing to not really have a B plot. Yeah. Just have an A plot and lots of other interesting things that connect into the A plot mm. along the way. Maybe troll intelligence as a... As a B plot, yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Well, the friendship between Cuddy and Detroit. and the helmet, which becomes like, and the evolution yeah, yeah. of the of the watch. But yeah, also the helmet. Oh, can we let's talk about Cuddy and Detroit? Yeah, because they hated each other so much, but then they did so much for each other. They're a dwarf and a troll, and they're set up as sort of the intense Natural ethnic enemies. rivalry, yeah, yeah. like mm. with a history. And it, I think, one of the things I like about it is because I was thinking about is there is it an an analog for something in the real world, and it doesn't really fit any real world relationships but it clearly is a stand-in for anything but it doesn't matter like it, it's just two peoples who for whatever historical reason do not get along mm. but you know you then you put two individuals in there and maybe they can have a friendship and make each other's lives better because um, cuddy actually does improve like he figures out things about detritus to make him more intelligent make him function in the world mm. better which like they actually actively benefit in other ways i knew cuddy died 
but I did not remember that he died in the same book where you meet him and I was yeah. not ready. No. <laughs> I was very sad. I think as it was getting closer to that point near the end of the book where he was going alone up the tower, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, it's going to happen. And then in after he's been killed, um, and just Detritus is so sad. Yeah. For that moment before he gets angry, he's sad. He's sitting there with his helmet looking at it. And he's, he calls it helmet made by my... My friend Cuddy, and you're like. It took me too long to accept that he was actually dead because I had conflated him with the character. Yeah. And then when death comes in, I'm like, oh, death doesn't usually make mistakes. Can't wait to see how, like, this isn't happening. Mm. And then it just kept on. I was like, oh, no, it's real, isn't it? He's really not yeah, coming back. Yeah, we've really lost him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the thing that Stephen King does as well, really beautifully, of making you love a character and then taking them away from you, oh, which yeah. I think is a really. Because that's what happens in life, you know, like you lose people that you love and it doesn't all work out fine and you don't get saved at the last minute. And so you you invest so strongly in them, mm. but life isn't fair and death comes and takes them away. And like, I really love that, that that's, I mean, he gives us something that's so familiar in a world that's so alien, but like we recognize everybody in the, you recognize mm. everybody in these books yeah. Um, and people die, which, yeah. you know. People die. Yeah. Oh, and it's, it's upsetting. Yeah. It is upsetting. Yeah. And it really is upsetting. Like the other characters who are killed in the book, you feel sorry for them, but we don't really meet them before it happens. No. But we do. We know Cuddy so well. And he has all those great moments. Like when they're locked in the Pork Futures warehouse yeah. is the mm. key moment in the book for them. Which again is part of the kind of accidental policing uh, yeah. narrative where they just have happened to be in the right place at the right mm. time. And they find the right clue. Because it's after they leave the Port Futures warehouse that they fall down the hole and end up in the sewers under Ankh Morpork, mm. which is such an important part of the book too. They're very instrumental plot-wise and you have this nice buddy cop thing going on with them and they become friends and then, then one of them dies. Yeah. And then there's, but then there's also that beautiful thing of like when they, they just start conscripting everybody. Yeah. And so it's like, we've got too many trolls, we need more dwarfs. So like they, like yeah. they are the, the, the epicenter of the movement for understanding, I suppose, between the two species. And Detritus yeah. just becomes a monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah, he just, it's like he's just been getting instruction from Colin. You horrible troll. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're very Tolkien influenced. The dwarves are basically people who are a bit short and they like gold and they live in caves. The Discord books are always about people even when they're about magical beings and, you know, they're still people. Yeah. And the trolls are an interesting one because they're the most sort of sci-fi fantasy kind of thing in there. And he doesn't go with something more popular or, or more common like elves or orcs, but he goes with trolls. And they're very Tolkien-style trolls who are made out of stone yeah. or revert to stone. And this is the one where he takes that and uses it to his advantage mm. and basically using his love of computers as well because what he's doing when he's in the Port Futures warehouse is Detritus's brain is being overclocked. It's just being cooled down to go faster. Do yeah. you think that trolls have a base four number system because two hands, two feet as a side point? Because it's like one, uh, two, three, yeah, many. Yeah. Like many, one, many, two, many, three, many, many. So... Like that yeah. makes sense yeah. to me. Yeah, and it, I mean, because and you see that come back the base four because he's talking about we need sixteen more trolls. And he goes, no, no. He says, give me sixteen. No, make it sixty-four. <laughs> 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 ah, okay, uh, clever. <laughs> they might not all have the same number of fingers. Mm, yeah, you don't know. They always described a bit differently. The trolls. Getting back to Cuddy's death, though, the other thing I found quite sad is that Death says you don't have to haunt the world oh. as a ghost, and he says. Well, what if I want to? Does that mean he's going to stick around? What? And then, but then you don't hear from him again. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, does he show up later on as a ghost? I don't think I he don't does. I don't think so. No. So it's really unclear what happens to him are after death. Are there ghosts? Are there ghosts in Ankh Morpork? I think there are ghosts. 
I'm sure there are ghosts in the Discworld. Can they interact with the real world? Because there are people who yeah. choose the in-between. That's but. true. And I, you know what? I don't remember. I can't. It'll probably come up mm. in one of the books when we read it. But certainly in this one, it's typical Discworld death. Like you talk to death for a bit and then yeah, you go on to whatever you yeah. imagine the afterlife's going to be like. But yeah, it's really unclear with Cuddy. And I wonder if he was setting it up so he could bring him back as a ghost. Because I'm sure I'm sure there is a ghost in one of the books. I seem to remember that. But I thought there was going to be more of yeah, that. Yeah. And then nothing happened. But then I guess we end up with Cherry Longbottom, don't yeah. we? He's our favourite dwarf. Yeah. yeah. She's and pretty watch. great. Yeah. Who I thought was the same as Cuddy which is why I was extra shocked by the death. Oh, no. I just remember them as the same. That would have been a good reveal, though, if he'd been like, you know, um, Cuddy, hold this book, and then the <laughs> next book is when, well, actually, I'm a lady dwarf. Because yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they constantly refer to, in fact, in Guards, Guards, when they there's a lot of stuff with dwarves at the start, they talk about how they all have beards. Mm. They only use one pronoun. And it actually says, so essentially for dwarves, gender is optional. And they touch on it in this book a mm. few times, but not in any detail. Cuddy and Chubby are like some of the worst losses in this book. This is not about this book, but the last Terry Pratchett, I Should Wear Midnight? Is that the... Oh, the Tiffany Aching one. Tiffany Aching one. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a death in that. Hmm. And when I read that, I cried and cried because I felt like it was Terry Pratchett dying. Like oh. I felt like for me that was like, oh yeah, this is the end of Terry Pratchett. Like oh. it's, very, you... it's very beautiful and great, but... There's you. Was it you who was reading it? When he died, I was reading, reading Raising Steam and yeah. I was halfway through it and it was in my bed and I woke up and I flipped through my phone being like, what great things have happened in the world today, internet? And it's like, Terry Pratchett's died. I'm like, and I didn't pick one up until um, this, actually, this is the first Terry Pratchett book. Yeah, I really grieved when he died. Like yeah. I was like, oh, all that joy that you've brought so many people and what an amazing mind. Yeah. Just, oh. Well, I mean, look, the plot goes on even if Cuddy doesn't go on. Yeah. Mm. We sort of touched on the police investigation. They find clues. A lot of them they find by accident and it's quite a clever plot in the sense that it's kind of half a Columbo style we know who's doing it and we know what they're up to because it's kind of explained to us at the start when Edward's like this guy Carrot he's the real king he's the heir to the throne we should reinstate him I'll do it by killing off these key people that clearly seems to be his plan and then they find his body and you're like wait it's not him yeah Mm. and there's that moment where they they find a second corpse of Beano and that's when they have to go to the Fool's Guild and say, well, someone else paint up with somebody else's face. And they're like, well, he got away with it because no one would think of in the Fool's Guild would imagine anyone doing that. But then it's not him. And it is a mystery. And I I fully confess that when I was reading this, I knew there was some twist in the story, but I could not remember who it was and I did not have any idea until it was revealed. Was it a surprise to you as well? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel it was an earned surprise? Like, do you think it was set up enough as to who it was? It's definitely, if, if you're going to compare it uh, to a horror movie, it's a jump scare rather than a build, suspenseful build-up, I reckon. Yeah. My theory on that is that it didn't matter who it was. It was whoever he brought the gun to. Yeah, yeah. It would have been them because yep. the gun is so powerful and the only person who can resist it is Carrot. Mm. So I, I kind of liked that you couldn't guess who it was because it didn't matter in the end. Well, that makes sense because it's Doctor. it ends up being Dr. Cruces, mm. the uh, head of the Assassin's Guild. I think the, the moment where it really worked for me was when Vimes gets a hold yep. of the gun and he starts doing the classic kind of Hollywood swinging around to cover someone, shooting at them as they run away, like the kind of stuff that detectives do yeah. in, in Hollywood movies and TV shows because this is not what he's normally like. He's not like trying to kill people. And that was quite shocking. Vimes is fighting the gun, but he's doing this stuff like um, 
shoots the ceiling and then shouts, the law, you sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like it's so it's getting into the stereotypes kind of thing of a, of a shoot em up. Then there's lots of moments like that throughout the book. Like there's the one where they're in the armory. It's basically that scene from the Terminator where the Terminator yeah. goes in and he says, you've got a fa- you know, phased plasma rifle. And the guy's like, just what you see in the store, pal. And the, the guy in the armory says the same thing to, to Nobby. So it does bring in those archetypes. But yeah, yeah it's, it's when Vimes picks it up that it goes for broke. Yeah. Um, and I was also really satisfied by when they are dealing, like they've got the gun. It's before that. The gun is kind of talking and says i'm merely the gun guns don't kill people people kill people mm. yeah and it's like thank you for putting that in there like yeah. it's a great reference point it comes back to that idea where the gun doesn't want to be replicated because it wants to be the only gun mm. and, and therefore only the person who has the gun has that power and it doesn't want that power distributed to the masses even though you know they have crossbows by the time we get to the later books, like they've got things like steam engines as well. Like there's, there's that sense of progress through the books yeah. that and the clacks and all that kind of yeah. yeah, which is so and that, which is a thing that sets it apart from other fantasy worlds. I feel because in so many fantasy worlds, a big thing is that it's always the same, yeah, you know, and it's been the same for thousands of years. Where in the Discord, you get the feeling that there is history there and it has been the same, but now is the point where things are changing. Mm. It's the century of the fruit bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And and you get that essential Pratchett thing too, where something from our world is leaking into yeah, the disc yeah. world and just screwing it up for everyone. And in this book, it's it's the gun. Isn't it interesting though? Because um, De, De Eth, Edward, the original guy who got the gun, mm. his whole thing was trying to get one person in power, like carrot, bring back the kings, and he ends up bringing a different kind of one thing in power into being through trying to do that. So it's kind of an interesting comment in its own way. You mean like is in uh, the, like reinforcing the rule of the patrician? Is that what you mean? No, it's or? kind of um because he wants a king to be in charge. He wants mm. the one person who has all the power to be overseeing everyone. He ends up bringing the gun in to do this, but then the gun kind of in it's its the own one becomes thing with all the power. power. Is the yeah. thing with the power. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you mean. So yeah. he creates the bad side of the thing he was trying to do on his own. Because if Carrot became king, frankly, that would be fine. But only Carrot is the lineage yeah, that's yeah. the problem. When one person has absolute power, then anyone who works for them effectively has absolute power and so there's that there is a passage about that where he talks about you better hope the second in command of the king is also a a good man man. and there's the parallels with the gun and who's the conduit for the gun Mm. so vimes goes off and he's done shooting at people and stuff but he also manages to put it down when carrot tells him to he plays it kind of ambiguous how much of that is carrot's natural sort of ability to be obeyed and how much of it is vimes's own sort of ability to not do the wrong thing which I thought was nice. Yeah. In this book, he, he obviously hates kings and he has that one rant, but it's not quite as frothing at the mouth as in some of the later books yeah. when he talks about it. He gets even more anti it. It's weird in our current political climate. Yeah. We have a lot of people who seem to really be flocking to that kind of more autocratic thing. You know, it's a big theory about one of the reasons why Trump is so popular. It's not so much because of the things he says he's going to do, but because of the way he presents himself as yeah. a, a leader who doesn't listen to anybody else. But yeah, it's in Vimes' blood to hate kings. So Yes. Yeah. And I like how they, they, they do tell you it was a Vimes. Yeah. But yeah. Vimes doesn't tell us it's a Vimes. Yeah. yeah. He's he's like he is proud of it, but he's also ashamed of it yeah. at the same time. I can't figure out if the king that his ancestor killed was actually nice or if that's all like a ruse because oh. it's ambiguous. Oh. It's like, oh the no, kind faced one who was surrounded by children is no, I'm like I reckon that's I reckon he's saying that he was a pedophile. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. I thought. I was like, yeah. but is it? is it? Oh no, because they, they talk about the cleanup afterwards where they found the secret rooms right. and all the devices and like he's clearly also so torturing people. Very and, bad. Mm, okay. Yeah, very bad. But but named in a way that was ambiguous so yep. that the populace could believe otherwise if they wanted to. 
Okay, something the kind or something. Yeah, yeah. Lorenzo the kind? Mm. Something like that, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's it. Oh, yes, says Vimes carefully. He was very fond of children. Yes, that's the... Yeah. It's interesting things like that. There are moments like that too where, like, it's quite an innocent world and then there will just be these moments where something adult sort of creeps in a bit. Like, or, or there's like a description of something of anger or saying something about, like, having extra nipples. And I was, it like, it kind of jars a little bit yeah. with, the, with the light-heartedness of the... Yeah, like there's yeah. one line where someone says shit. Oh, it's yeah. when Detritus is in the sewers. Oh, yes. Yeah, and even shit gets its own street. Yeah, which is great. Oh, it's like it's the one time there's a real swear word and you're like, oh. Because Carrot can't even say damn. They put an asterisk over the A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then there's something like nice bitch for anger as well. Oh, and it's that... like, that, oh, no, no, don't do that. Like, Yeah, that was jarring too. And as much as it's like that old joke where it's like, what, it's a, it's a female, dog. It's a female yeah. dog. You're like, yeah. Speaking of things that sort of took me out of it just a little bit, as soon as they start talking about the gun, it's really hard to talk about guns without using gun-specific language. So after people have shot at Cuddy and Detritus, they start talking about how they were shot at. And I I had myself thinking, is that how you describe it if someone fires arrows at you? Do you say, I was shot at? Or would you have? shot with an arrow. If you were normally... I mean, a lot of the terms are similar to like, particularly crossbows, which is what the watch has. But I was just like, is that right? Because it yeah. sounds like talking mm. about a gun. And how would they know to say those things? Um, but they never, I don't think they ever use the word bullet. Um, no, no. They barely, they don't even use the word slug. I think they just sort of refer to as pellets or yeah, something. Yeah, they do use the word slug. Oh, they do yep. use slug? Because I noticed that on slug. I was like, is that what you would call it? Because you wouldn't know that it was a slug. You'd, mm. you, and it doesn't look like a no, slug. because they mm. always find the ones that have been fired. So they're yeah. flattened into a disc because they're made out of lead yeah yeah so it's a there's there's stuff like that that comes in and it's a bit weird yeah but mostly mostly it's, it's pretty good mm. um, i mean it's fantastic let's be honest yeah. it's, it's fantastic we're nitpicking oh it's a really good but well that's our job you know like <laughs> to find something you know we get to the end of the the plot we find out who who done it <laughs> you know and we have that confrontation where vimes gets the gun but it's not vimes who who kills the bad guy no it's carrot yeah how do we feel about that? And and what about Carrot's whole thing? Like once disorder sets in because the day watch is called in to take over from the night watch, they're stood down and they arrest Coalface the troll for killing um, Hammerhawk the dwarf, which he obviously didn't do. And then that's that sets the racial tensions between dwarves and trolls off and they start to fight in the street and there's unrest. And that's when Carrot's like, oh, I've got, there's rules for this. Yeah, yeah. Would you say, and he, he asks about three or four times mm. before he gets an answer that satisfies him. And then he's like, well, we're a citizen's militia now, according to the rules of Ankh-Morpork. And everyone's like, what? And that's when he kind of takes over as a king. How do we feel about that side of him and that really well, coming Well, I out? feel like he is the city. Mm. He's like the physical manifestation of the city. Wow, like, yeah. So every, and everything he does is for the city and like, you know, Angua makes the, or thinks the think that, you know, he's giving her a city instead of flowers. Like he's so, everything he does is for the city and he's like, he's always talking about polis and, you know, where the, where policeman comes from and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like it's surprising that he kills someone, but it makes sense because he's the city. Yeah, it's what needs to happen for yeah. the good of the thing. And he's not a watchman at that point, so he's a city, he's, he's a militia, I yeah. guess, as well. Yeah. And I think he also does, doesn't he do it because Chris makes a move for the gun or something? Like, he doesn't just kill him. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, because Chris has got the gun back by yeah. that point. And, and he's, he's pointing to at shoot it at Vimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's that callback to, you know, like a good man will kill you without talking yeah, about yeah, it first. Yeah. And he does. And and that's where the sword goes into the stone. It's a shocking moment, but it also it feels satisfying. Mm. And particularly in later Pratchett books, 
the bad guy often doesn't get killed. Or if he does, he gets killed kind of like that Doctor Who thing where the Doctor doesn't kill the bad guy. He just tricks them into dying. killing themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like through their own greed or um, meanness or whatever. And that often is what happens in Pratchett books too. Um, or they just sort of go away. <laughs> the yeah, end. or they're redirected into something. We don't really see the wedding in the no. end, do we? No. I was a bit disappointed. Yeah, I was like, yeah. they've been building towards this the whole time. And just like, yeah. no. And we never even see Sybil at the wedding. Like, because it all goes off the rails before she turns up. And then they kind of have to hastily have a sort of other wedding. <laughs> I feel like she'd handle it well, though, because she's very pragmatic. Yeah. That's yeah. true. And I do, I do like the way that Sam Vimes is like, he really wants to talk to her because she's like the perfect person to talk to, but you're not supposed to see her on the wedding day, kind of. Mm. Like, I like what that says about their relationship. And you do get that relationship only through sort of little little hints mm. like that. But it does seem, you, do, you just get a really solid feeling from the little that you hear that this is really good for yeah. both of them, that yeah. they're both into it. Yeah. And she's oddly, for someone who works with dragons all day and is clearly quite progressive in some ways, she's very old-fashioned. Yeah, to mm. want to sign everything over to Yeah, and sort of, and partially at least take his name as well. Yeah. yeah. It's, it is a bit weird, but at the same time makes sense for the character. Yeah. Can I just say how much I like that her last name is like an oven-safe dish and yes. she works with dragons? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was intentional. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just love that. It's just such a good little detail. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. I love yeah. the little realisations too that sometimes you don't pick up until you've read it a couple of times yeah. and you go, oh, I've missed that. <laughs> but going back and reading Pratchett now, um, some of these books I haven't read for 20, 25 years, I'm like, oh, this is good. I don't yeah, remember yeah. this bit. This is great. Oh, I get that joke now. We uh, haven't talked about Mrs. Cake very much. Oh, don't ask us about Mrs. Cake. <laughs> She's got, that's probably one of my favourite jokes in the whole book is when Mrs. Cake's trying to tell Angura that someone's at the door for her and she's answer, she's saying things that haven't happened yet. And Angura's like, Mrs. Cake, you've got your precognition turned on. Yeah, yeah. She's a lovely old lady. Yeah. She's just nice like, in like, this book. The, like her home is a safe haven for mm. people who are outcasts or people, you know, like she's got no... She doesn't judge anybody. She's mm. like Miss Peregrine. Yeah, yeah. She's like a... Airbnb, or just normal B&B from like the 90s where they'd leave out a tray of mince pies for everyone who's a guest. Like It just seems like a nice place to live where yeah. you're looked after and treated like you're a visitor, not a paying sort of yeah. tenant. And that, and that she's, gone to, she's got like a, a tray of gravel for um, the zombie. Is it the zombie? Well, she's the vampire. Got four? The vampire, she's yeah, because he's got a bad back. So yeah. she's changing the, the dirt in his coffin. But she's got some gravel because it's orthopedic or something. And she usually leaves a little window open at the back for people werewolves to get in because yeah. her daughter's operate. a werewolf yeah which is only mentioned in passing but you're yeah. like well oh, that sounds like it might be important <laughs> um and I'm, I'm i know she comes back in later books as well particularly the ones where red shoe features yeah. a lot i just want to know what happened with her in the post office that she's mentioned yeah. on their sign twice because i don't think we ever find out why she's specifically on the list of things that the post office will not talk about yeah but it's i i really enjoyed that the post office was mentioned here and it's yeah. the first time he makes the that joke about the the motto the glom of knit yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and all that stuff where it's misspelled and it doesn't quite make sense. Then it's really not mentioned again until going postal. postal yeah. yeah, it's the plot of a whole book, like yeah. revitalizing the postal service, which here we learn used to be great and now has just fallen totally yeah. into disrepair. It's nice to imagine them walking past and Stanley's in there with his pins, like at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the passage of time in the books is an interesting subject because, like I said, this one is I think about. Four months after uh, Guards, Guards. But it's published like several years later. So it's never clear what that timeline is. Yeah. He just decides how much time needs to have passed mm. for things to have happened to get the story to where mm. he wants it to be. 
But four months is not a long time for Carrot to have arrived. Matured. I'm a member of the guild, you know, the watch and then just met everybody. Yeah. And he's still, he can't be more than 17 years old now. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. But I do love that way that he's like, he's one of those guys that knows everybody and like he's been up to hang out with the gargoyles and <laughs> that he is just so beloved. Yeah. So fast. And people don't even know why they like him. Yeah. yeah. They just know they do. Because I think we all know somebody like that. Yeah. 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 Oh, cut yeah. me own throat dibbler. Yeah. I yeah. Love, I love that when he shows up. He's got a nice cameo in this yeah. book. And it was I quite enjoyed that he was in it a, a, more than just a passing reference as he is in a lot of the books. Because yeah. he's just such an archetypal bit of yeah. the disc world. Like I th- I'm pretty sure he shows up in the first one in The Colour of Magic. And then he's just there. And then there's all the like versions of him on other countries. Yeah, yeah. On the continents of places. But yeah, this is him at his, at his simple best. Because in Moving Pictures, which is only a book or two before this, he has that whole thing where he becomes the Discord equivalent of a Hollywood yeah. producer. And now he's back to selling sausages in a barn on a street corner. And he absolutely sells bottles of water from the river. Like he, they never yeah, say yeah. that, but he absolutely does that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> from the source. He probably doesn't sell it as water though. Yes. It's like, I don't Garnish, know. mustard. <laughs> it's terrible. Every time I read his thing, I'm like, oh, I could really go a hot dog. I do that as well. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, I would like one of those. Yeah. Something with tubes in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, just, I just, oh, yeah, like last time I went to like get a kebab. Or oh, and he tries to, um, he's equal opportunities to everyone. He doesn't care who his customers are. So he tries to cater to the, yeah, yeah. To the trolls and they're like, oh, this has all got lichens through it and stuff like that. Like, it's this, this shale is stale. Like all that. <laughs> Like, how can it be stale? It's a rock. <laughs> and you're like, you have not researched this, uh, but you're giving it a go. Yeah. So that's all right. I like, I liked how there are callbacks to guards, guards, but they're, they're mostly very subtle things. Like when, um, I think it's Vimes who's saying, Oh, you know, this is a mystery. Oh, maybe it's Colin actually. He's talking about how he prefers a dragon to a mystery. It's like with a dragon, you know where you are. Like you just sort of point your arrow at it and try and shoot it. But a mystery is not really his deal. And of course, Fowl Ron turns up. Yeah, mm-hmm. bugger oh, it. Yeah, another another one of the classic characters is in all in so many of the books, but is not a major character. But he and he just he does say Millennium Shrimp. Handed Handed shrimp. shrimp. Yeah. He doesn't say bugger it though. I don't think. You no, know, he does. Oh, he does. Yeah. Yep. Oh, he does. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, it was great. It was great. It was like meeting old friends. Yeah. Because we've read them before, and you know, you're reading this book, and they just sort of turn up, and they're not really a major part of the plot. But you're like, oh, I know you. Oh, yeah. How nice to see you. Yeah. I felt that way about Gaspode. I was like, I'd forgotten about you, little stinky talking dog. Yeah. I get disappointed at how badly he's treated by people because he's always having he to be like, oh, like making people feel bad in their heads for kicking him. I'm like, as they should, like feel bad. Yeah, it's fair. Nobody likes nobody likes to see a dog getting kicked. That's like that's why we talk about kicking puppies is the thing only truly yeah. evil people do. Um, and the patrician has a lot to do in this book too. Yeah, and I'm a big. He's one of my absolute faves. Yeah, I love him too. I like also at the end of the book. Like, as much as it's a comedy, and it in some ways has that kind of sitcom mentality, it's not a sitcom in that you never get to the end of a book in... Or very rarely you get to the end of a Pratchett book and things aren't different to how they were at the start. Yeah. And that's particularly true, more so true, actually, of the Watch books than any of the others. Because their story is always about the evolution of them as a police force and the evolution of the city itself. And so at the end of the book, instead of having, you know, a Watch with, like, six people in it, you've got a watch that's being restored to a full force of 56 and is going to have all these different watch houses. Yeah, yeah. And now there's going to be a commander of the watch and Vimes is being given a knighthood that's forced upon him because he otherwise can't be commander of the watch. He keeps getting promoted in every other book, but this is the one that changes 
his level of authority. It, now he's in charge and people recognize have to recognize that mm. he's in charge. And he has the power to change things the way he thinks they should be. And you just even just that last scene in the book where he's doing the planning. Yes. You're like, oh, this, he's, this is kicking off something. It makes me wonder how much forward planning he did when he was writing. Like what, what mm. like how far out he'd planned. Like, mm. you know, I'm going to revitalize the post office. I'm going to start a newspaper. The watch needs to get bigger. Or whether, whether it was a, a more organic process than that or whether he did have it mapped out yeah. for the for the evolution of the city. Yeah, I think I get the feeling it was probably quite organic, but it feels like it could have been planned. Yeah, yeah, because because as it goes on, like you know, with the raising steam and everything, it's like oh, these there are these big moments of uh, of evolution in a society, like and that again seems so familiar and and resonate so much because you can see the parallels and you know where we've come from and where we're going and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. my brain. Yeah. So I think I think it's safe to say we all thought this was great. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And as an as an introduction to the world of the disc world do we think it worked well it puts you in the deep end but also it explains who everyone is mm. and how they fit in so i think it, it gives you a good cross-section like a taster plate yeah 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 with yeah. murders yeah the, and the only the only people that you don't meet are the witches like you don't mm. meet granny weatherwax or anyone like that is carrot the hero of this book i liked what you thought about how he is the city but he is also presented as kind of the heroic. He's presented as the hero, but he's also presented as the hero who doesn't want to be the hero or doesn't need to be the hero. And he brings out the good in other people. Like he yeah. kind of... He's the catalyst, yeah. isn't he? So he creates heroes-ish. And, it, and it's like an ensemble solution. Mm. That's one of the key differences, I think, between this and the other Watch books is that Vimes is very much the protagonist of those books. And he has like his, you know, team, but he's the one that drives those mm. stories. Whereas in this one, he takes a a real backseat for quite a lot of the book. No, it's kind of like the episodes at the end of a season when you know an actor is having a contract dispute and they sort of do episodes to see if they could write them out. <laughs> and then the audiences are like, no, no, we won't have we this. We need and, him. And yeah. then they're back with force. And obviously that's not what happened in this book, but that's what that, that chunk where he's missing feels like. It's yeah. like, could we? Could No. I mean, you might think it was too early for that, but in fact, at this time, around the time this was written, there was an online fan community for Terry Pratchett on news groups, because it's 1993 we're talking about, and Pratchett was interacting with them. So he oh, knew wow. about them. In the dinner party scene, when Vimes is like getting annoyed at the way that other people are talking, there's certain elements of the way that they're arguing that are drawn from the way people argue online. Huh. <laughs> The particular thing that was like what happened on the internet is that someone says, in my humble opinion, uh, and Vimes is like, I don't think there is such a thing as yeah. a humble opinion. Like, yeah. Yeah. Do we have any real favourite lines or moments that we want to talk about, favourite joke? I just really loved the sentence. It began, as many things do, with a death. Like, what a beautiful mm. start to the story. Yeah. Like, it's such a... The possibilities just stretch out immediately in front of you, and it's just such a simple piece of poetry does have a great turn of phrase. Oh, beautiful. Mm. Just a delightful. Just And such amazing craft. How about you? I loved, um, he could think in italics, such people need to be watched, preferably from a safe distance, which I actually put as my, um, my email signature <laughs> for <laughs> an embarrassingly long period of time <laughs> when I first read it. One of the things I liked about that, this is another callback that I noticed, was it talks about how he thinks in italics and that's dangerous. And then the Whenever the gun is speaking, it's in italics. Yeah, I thought that was really good. Oh, the bureaucratic writing whenever they're talking about the rules in the watch and when Colin's listing the things that you get. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And he's got like one badge, comma, office of, comma, night watchman's, comma, copper. (laughs) (laughs) That is is so over the top. It's delightful. 
Um, and I really loved, uh, and this is a phrase that has stuck with me um, for many years, licky end, where uh, Gaspo talks about a, a complaint that he has. Oh, yeah. And I just, is. licky end is just so, that's what little dogs do. They just have licky end. Like, <laughs> What about footnotes? Does anyone have a favourite footnote? Troll counting system. There are so many contenders in this book. The first one that I like is the one about atheists swearing. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah. Random yeah. fluctuations in the space-time continuum. Yeah. Actually, I'm not even sure that's a footnote, but it's one of my favourite gags. It was just like, it takes somebody who's very disciplined in their atheism to not say, oh, God, this hurts. Um, I really love the footnote about what ook means when the librarian says ook. So librarian, formerly human, now orangutan, uh, working on a human orangutan dictionary, uh, he'd got as far as ook. And then the footnote is, which can mean, well, meanings include, pardon me, you're hanging from my rubber ring. Thank <laughs> you so very much. It may just be vital biomass oxygenating the planet to you, but it's home to me. And I'm sure there was a rainforest around here a moment ago. Oh, like, yeah. how beautiful. Uh, I also want to put in one for, I really like the concept of, and footnote that explains, retrophrenology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, which you know, phrenology being, you can tell somebody's personality by the bumps on their head. So clearly, you can change someone's personality by putting the right bumps on their head. <laughs> and I like the way it kind of comes across as a, as kind of a dig at alternative medicines. You can go into a shop and order an artistic temperament with a tendency to introspection and a side order of hysteria. What you actually get is hit on the head with a selection of different size mallets, but it creates employment and keeps the money in circulation. And that's the main thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, it doesn't work, but you know, some people get something out of it. I also really loved um, when detritus is turning into the military man, up you get soldiers, hand off rock and on with sock. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, oh, we haven't talked about angular dying and then coming back oh, to life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is a big deal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I'd forgotten that as well. Yeah. Like, well, when I read it, I was like, oh, did she... D- what? And Carrot doing the... And it, it's personal, but that's not the same as important. Oh, like, yeah. Because it's the whole thing where, you know, like, they finally do sleep together and then he wakes up afterwards, he throws open the curtains and the moonlight comes in and he turns around there's a bloody great wolf in his bed and he freaks out and he berates himself for picking up his own sword. But as and Gaspard later on points out to Angua, she, he's like, well, what do you think would happen? Like, you could have at least hinted to him. Like, he turned around and there was a wolf there. Yeah. And you're like, that's that's fair. I see. I interpreted it as Gaspard telling him off. I didn't interpret it as him thinking those thoughts himself. But oh. maybe that's just a misread. Yeah, I thought he was telling... I can't remember. I thought... Uh, well, maybe it's a bit of both. Is it when he realises that Gaspard can talk? Is that... that yeah, that yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, maybe it is Gaspard who says... He, you yeah, idiot. Up. You just pulled your sword on her. Yeah, yeah. But I, it, it didn't. It could have been either. I think that was a nice moment where it's like, they, you know, he and Gaspard think the same way in a lot of ways. Is it because she had no control? Because he opened the curtains and moonlight came in, and she just turned into yeah. a wolf. She does say that if you in the full moon, when the moon is full and in the sky, she has to change. Mm. Um, and so I think that was yeah, that's why it happened. Whether she's or if she's in moonlight, they, they kind of just set that up. But mm. then while the moon is full for like that week, it's technically full. She can she change her will. Yeah. And then the rest of the time she can't. So, which is, you know, interesting. And I like also that she mentions there's different kinds of werewolves. Yeah. Because I think from memory, Mrs. Cake's daughter, when you meet her later on, she's just the kind of always very hairy variety of yeah. werewolf. <laughs> um, she's always wearing a big hat, I think. So she's not in the moonlight or something. She And she can smell that he's in danger or can hear that he's in danger yeah. from a long, or not that in danger, that he's been hurt. From a long way away, which is kind of interesting in itself. 
because they've only just met like a few days yeah. before and now is it because they've slept together or well, because he matters so much to her yeah well, I guess cre- so. the bond i think yeah maybe yeah she's imprinted on him oh god it's like twilight he's her master oh no <laughs> but she does show up to save him at the yeah. end and i i think as much as it felt good it also kind of reinforced this nagging feeling i couldn't get rid of that she is kind of there to serve his plots rather than have her own story yeah because yeah. she doesn't really get an arc like her arc is Oh, I'm joined the watch and these guys are all a bit of an idiot. Oh, but Captain Carrot's kind of cute. Oh, also everybody likes him. And oh, isn't it interesting the way I can't quite figure him out, but isn't he great? And oh, yeah, I guess we're going to sleep together now. And oh, no, he's in trouble now. I'm going to like jump in front of a bullet for him. So in the Bechdel test of her talking to herself, she fails it still then. <laughs> yes, because she's talking Because <laughs> she, she doesn't talk to any other women. No. Well, Mrs. What, what Cake. Women? Mrs. Cake. Oh, she oh, talks yeah. to Mrs. Yeah, Cake. Yeah. About true. Carrot. About but Carrot, about yeah, carrot yeah. turning up. Yeah. 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 So no good. No yeah. Bechdel test for this book. Yeah. Yeah. Sybil and Emma talk about Vimes. Yeah, they talk about Vimes. Yeah. yeah. But they, and they only say about three words yeah. anyway. Yeah. They're Emma's. So we did ask for people to tweet. And we only asked this at the last minute. So we don't have a lot of questions for this one. But when we announce what the book will be for next time, if you have any questions for us that you'd like us to answer about the book or about themes in Pratchett's works that come up in the book that we'll be discussing next time, please tweet them at us. So we got a good one, which was, would you be happy living under the patrician? Is he a viable replacement for our current government, assuming he can work around S44? <laughs> I don't think... Well... I mean, does he have citizenship? <laughs> yeah, Hancock? and only one citizenship. Mm. I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, but he would kill anyone who knew about his second citizenship. So, like, yeah, mm. yeah, or he'd, he'd get it rescinded, and then he'd have the documents backdated, mm. so it didn't yeah. count. Or he would just invade the place that he had second citizenship of and make it uh, a subunit of Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> he'd find a <laughs> and way. Solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, he'd solve the yeah. problem one way or another. But he does. I mean, as a ruler, he's pretty great. Yeah. He gets stuff done and he seems to do it for the right reasons. He's not in it for the power. Mm. I mean, you'd sort of described in the earlier books as being ruthless and everyone's afraid of him. But as it goes along, he's actually quite cuddly in his way. I mean, he is ruthless, but not without, you know, cause. Yeah. And he clearly has everybody's best interests at heart. He's that sort of he's that he's that archetype he's like that benevolent dictator. I feel idea. he wouldn't have done um, Manus and Nauru. Yeah. He wouldn't have. No. He wouldn't have done that. No, because I don't. Does he? He doesn't really have anybody tortured from memory. Does I he? think it's just he has the threat of torture, which is enough. Like he mm. he goes a lot on rumors, like mm. and he's got like that. Doesn't he have a drop or a room that he threatens? Um, he threatens Moist von Lipwig with, but oh, you never yeah. actually hear of him doing any of the things he threatens that he could do. Yeah. But then again, you wouldn't because he's so good at secrets. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. I don't think he would do that. I mean, it's not it's not clever enough for him anyway. No. Uh, but yeah, the shadows part of him is enough to make people yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like when I count to three for my son, I have no idea what happens when I get to three. Neither <laughs> does he, but it's been working for eight years. He doesn't <laughs> like, want to find out. No, because yeah. I go, don't make me count to three, and then I'll get to three, and by three he's doing a thing. I'm surprised it's lasted this long, but... <laughs> <laughs> we don't let him listen to this podcast yeah. no. so the magic will dissipate <laughs> not till he's 21 <laughs> yeah 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 so I'd, I'd be I think I'd do alright under the position yeah. yeah but it's who comes next is the problem oh yeah it's like yeah. when he's gone then what because there's no wife and kids and yeah. it's not like it's going to be a hereditary post anyway because that would be a king yeah because if I'm, someone inherited that power and they were not good then it'd be really bad and it's sort of I mean I think 
and, and I'm sort of going from memory here, so this might be wrong, but I think in the first few books, there's a different patrician and veterinary comes in yeah. afterwards. Mm, yeah. Certainly in The Colour of Magic and, and Light Fantastic, I'm pretty sure they'd mention a patrician, but he is like, he'll kill people. It's during the Night Watch, isn't it? You see, oh, yeah, and you see him as a teen. And, yeah, yeah, because he's not patrician yet. But he, uh, and I, it's not, Oh, I think you do find out how he takes over at some point, but I forget how. And I think it's sort of it's intimated he's there by agreement of all the guilds. So yeah, it's really not clear what's going to happen. Mm. And it's kind of we probably never find out now because he, no. you know, which is sad. But that would have been a fascinating book to read. Yeah, yeah, the the turnover of power. Yeah. I think it's a perfect or well not a, as close to a utopia, but fleeting because once he's gone, you can't replace veterinary. He's like a one-off leader mm. that's not going to come around again for another thousand years. So. But Once he's gone, he'll descend back into chaos. Maybe that's where Carrot would have come in. Maybe mm. that's when the kings come yeah. back. But he would have to have a plan, though. Like, his yeah. plan is not just, I'll make sure everything's okay until I'm dead. His plan is, like, I'm going to fix this city so that it works forever. Without me. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah it's, um, I think that maybe his plan is Carrot. Or is his plan democracy? Is he going to bring in a vote? But he doesn't. He has so much disdain for the common person. Oh, that's true. Like he wouldn't believe that they could choose a good thing. And you probably can't trust the Angmore Pork population. Yeah. No. <laughs> they, they would. Yeah, they would vote to make Angmore Pork great again in yeah. a heartbeat. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. But that would have been that would have been an interesting book though, wouldn't it? Imagine oh, an election in Angmore yeah. Pork. And he's no- got Leonard's Aquarium. Maybe he's working on cloning. <laughs> it could be the case. Sorry. Maybe you- maybe it's not going to be a human. Successor, like maybe it's a dwarf or a troll or a, a golem who lived forever. Oh yeah, can he get turned into a vampire and then he can just do Ooh. it forever? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, so many, so many oh. options. Yeah, I think so. In answer to the question, yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, we would be happy, and he would do a better job than our current government. But now we're thinking, how could we get that situation to just never change? Yeah, how is it sustainable? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, mm. I like that. Do we have any other questions? Um, do you have to be born into a guild or can you choose one? Can you be a member of more than one and what sort of guild would you be in? Oh, those are good questions. Well, I think the first one's easy to answer. Mm. You, you do choose them. They're very much presented like schools or academies where you yeah. learn a trade. Mm. Um, certainly some of them have, you know, conditions. Like they pretty much never take anyone except nobility into the Assassin's Guild, for example. Mm. But that's a good question. I don't know if you... Uh, is, I'm pretty sure there is a character in one of the books who bounced around between the guilds. Yeah, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then ends up at one of them. But do you have to like have flunked out of one before you can go to another? Yeah. Or can you be a perpetual student and just be like, I have like... I think there is a character who did that, who was a perpetual student. But I don't know that... I think maybe they also had an element of flunking out and yeah. being kicked out of the guilds. I don't know what guild I'd like to be in, though. Not the Fool's Guild. Yeah, not the Fool's Guild. Yeah, I don't know. We've got two comedians here. Neither of us want to be yeah. in the Fool's Guild. <laughs> We're too smart for that. I would have been a wizard, I think. I like to think I was. I would have yep. been a wizard, but probably a comedy wizard. So I would have been like, <laughs> not as in like I'm really good at comedy. You would have been a magician. I would have been a magician. <laughs> no, I would have like been the wizard. I would have ended up in the high energy magic building with the other nerd wizards. Yeah, yeah. But also I would have been the one who whose job was to explain what we were, not really to do any research, but just to explain what we were doing to everyone. Like yeah, that yeah. Would have been, I feel like that's where I, I would I can see in. you doing that. I can totally see you doing that. Yeah, yeah. I think I would be a witch. Yeah, I could see that. But just for the cats. <laughs> he could be a cat. Oh, yeah, I suppose I could. He could. Yeah. And hang out with the other cats. Yeah, probably probably be a witch. And you get a cool hats. We both get a cool hats. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know which one I'd choose. I'd probably choose being in the watch, to be honest, based purely on how much I enjoy what they get up to in the books. But mm. if I had to live it, I'm not really sure. 
Maybe I'd be an Emma. Just play with dragons all day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be a pretty good life, really. Yeah. I reckon Sybil would give you good, good super. <laughs> yeah, she'd look after Yeah, she'd you. be firm but fair and she'd feed you well. And if you did a good job, I think she'd mentor you properly. Yeah, and occasionally she'd give you like an amazingly valuable piece of furniture mm. or something. You know, she'd, or she'd be like, I don't use this samovar. You have it, kind of. <laughs> She'd probably also make sure that you, you know, you found the right partner in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I can see her doing matchmaking. Yeah. The Emmas. Yeah. Maybe that's why they have interchangeable names because then they can take on the name of whoever she yeah, gets But then maybe with. some of the interchangeable Emmas would like to be with another interchangeable Emma. Mm. Yeah. And then, so. and then one of them's got to change their name or it gets very confusing. I'd very much read an interchangeable Emma themed book, like a bottle book. Is that a thing? A but, bottle book? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a bottle episode. Yeah. Like Monstrous Regiment, like where you kind of never see them again, but like just an Emma's book. A bottle episode is not, as you might reasonably assume, the immediate and unfortunate result of drinking a bottle of something cut-me-own-throat Dibbler has assured you has come straight from the source of the ink, but is in fact an episode of a television program which takes place in a single location, usually one of the regular sets that fans have seen many times before. I, I totally would read a bottle episode style book about the Emma's. Just the Emma's. Yeah. In December we'll of course be discussing another book, Liz, would you like to tell the audience what we'll be reading? Well, we've been dropping hints this episode, so if you've got it already, I'm well done. But um, after the popularity of it in the poll, we'll be discussing Mort. Yes, absolutely. Oh, it's one of my early favourites. I'm ready. I'm ready to reread it. It's going to be great. Are you dying to read it? Um, yes, absolutely. This is my afterlife. I suspect what will happen in the afterlife. <laughs> I, I actually think what will happen to me when I die is death will turn up and then we'll just hang out forever and be mates. Yeah. Mm. Like that's what I think my perfect afterlife would be like. <laughs> I'll be, be his new Alfred. Yeah, you'll be his liaison though. So you'll explain what death does to other people. You'll be like the, yeah. like mm. death's comms guy. Am I really dead? I'm like... Let me answer those questions. Yeah. For you. <laughs> Here's a laminated sheet that I prepared. I think that would be a good job. So, yeah, so we'll be talking about Mort. So if you want to read it, get in, read it now. If you've got questions you want to ask us about it, send them to us via Twitter. Um, that would be fantastic. Um, and, Carl, thank you so much for being our first guest. Oh, thanks for having me. Would you like to come back another time? I would love to come back another time. I think we'd like to have you back another time. So we'll have to figure out which, which one is your yeah, other yeah. favourites. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Maybe we'll get you back to talk about the carpet people. Yeah, cool. Yeah. But sorcery also, because yeah. sorcery is my first one. Oh, yeah. And I reckon I read that a number of times before I bought a second. Okay. Mm. Well, I think that would be good because that's a Rincewind book. And someone him. at this table is not a big Rincewind oh, fan. What? I don't dislike Rincewind. I just find his books not in- as engaging as the rest of it. I what just... about the luggage? I love the luggage. I love the luggage. I would read just a book yeah, about a bottle, luggage. A bottle yeah. episode of the <laughs> luggage with the interchangeable Emmas. Oh, crossover <laughs> episode. <laughs> That'd be great. I could just imagine them opening it and taking things out. Dragons. Just more dragons. dragons. Yeah. Just dragons. Dragons and cool outfits. Yes. The Emma's need cool outfits. Yeah. Good and boots. And the dragons. Sturdy boots. That sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and Cal, is there anything you would like to plug to our listeners? Where can they find you online for um, starters? You can find me on Twitter at Calbo, C-A-L-B-O. It has nothing to do with body odor. Every time I spell it out, I realize B-O doesn't sound great. So Calbo on Twitter. I have a book coming out in July. It's a kid's book. Uh, I don't know what it's called yet because the title we were going to call it is now apparently another book. Um, but there is a, a book by me coming out in July which I'm very excited about. Uh, would you say Pratchett was an influence on you? Possibly. Hopefully, I mean, it's, it won't be as funny as his, but it's it's funny and it's aimed at kids six and up. Thank you again so much. Please do check out Carl online. Watch out for a book in July. July, yep. And thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Pratchett, a monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast hosted by Elizabeth Fox and me, Ben McKenzie. This month's guest, Pratchetter, was comedian Cal Wilson. Pratchett is produced and edited by me, with 
Music and sound effects by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. Find us online at pratchatpodcast.com or on Twitter at pratchatpodcast. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.